Welcome to Primer, a podcast that gets you closer to the heart of the matter. As you may know, the Primer is a small cap at the base of ammunition that when struck by a firing pin goes BAM. It ignites the gunpowder and sends the bullet downrange. The point of the podcast is like that, to get you going in the right direction quickly by briefly tackling a variety of subjects like books, people, events, issues, whatever. After listening, if you want to take it further, you can. Episodes and more information can be found at personalprimer.com. Welcome to the Primer Podcast, everyone, a place where we have conversations to spark your thinking. Uh, my name is Charlie Thornton, and today I got a chance to talk with a guy who I really respect a lot, Malachi Walsh. Uh, Malachi worked for over 25 years with J. Walter Thompson in advertising um, and has a really cool career working with in strategy with some of the some of the greatest consumer brands out there. Um, his fingerprints are all over many ad campaigns that you would know. Um, he's also a lover of classical rhetoric and the great books. And so I was excited to talk to him about the release of his new book, Socratic Scribbling. So before we jump in to listen, um, do me a favor. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for being here. We're so excited to have you part of this conversation. Head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a really good review. Five stars would be ideal. Uh, and that way we can get the word out about conversations like this one. Okay, let's listen in. Malachi Walsh. Thank you Charlie so much for being Thornton. here. <laughs> it's great to talk to you again. I always enjoy talking talk to with you. Always enjoy talking with you. Um, you wrote a book. I did. Uh, you finally wrote a book, Socratic Scribbling. And I, I haven't worked all the way through it, but it's a delight. It's an absolute delight to read it. The uh, Well, the writing is really good, which is really appropriate for a book about writing. Um, so it's just, it's easy to read. It's it's fun. It's funny. Um, so I, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us about the book. And I, I guess my first question is, why did you feel the need to, to write this now? At the, especially at my age. Uh, probably the best, best explanation might be the pandemic. What else was there to do? Um, but over and above that, it came from after I retired from advertising, I uh, connected with some folks that were starting an online version of the Great Books program, which came out of the University of Chicago in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And um, I ran into this fellow from Oklahoma, Scott Hambrick. And I've met Scott. I've actually, yeah, I've actually talked with him for the podcast. Really yeah. interesting guy. Well, what I loved about Scott's take on the great books is I am a big believer in the great books and always will, which I could go into at length in a minute. Um, but what I really liked was his approach and how he came to like them. Uh, he's I was a successful kind of online entrepreneur and apparently wasn't real happy with his fitness. So he got involved with progressive resistance exercise and he got ripped, you know, lifting and doing all those squats. And he then began to think he wasn't all that happy with the education he had gotten either. So somehow he ran across Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book and stuff about the great books and had a insight which no one else has had, which is that the great books 
could create mental fitness for your mind. And if you start at the beginning and literally work your way through Adler's 10-year program, it's more or less like starting a progressive resistance exercise program only for your mind. And I love the metaphor. And in addition, his podcast was attracting kind of young people, which the great books didn't. You know, the great books these days are kind of, you know, they're old. So why should I read them? Why would you want to read an old science book? You know, why would you want to read kind of the first doctor? You know, what a waste of time. Um, and also, uh, you know, they're politically incorrect. They're old white debt guys, at least the Western civilization uh, version of them. So they're more or less going out of fashion. I found when I joined great books groups, they tended to be old folks uh, like me, though I had always found them incredibly valuable. So anyway, that's how I ran into Scott. And he asked me to be a moderator or to lead great books discussion on online great books, which I started to do. And a number of people were asking for a writing program because they felt that they hadn't learned how to write in school. Uh, this is not unique. In my 30 years of advertising, I had lots of people from clients who want to approach me and ask to do an individual tutorial with senior executives or to develop a course showing people how to write. And uh, basically, uh, you and Joe McCormick have built a, a very successful business on that very need. And we're not talking about dumb people here. We're talking about people who come out of Harvard and Stanford have trouble putting together a memo. Yeah, so they're, they're not only are they not dumb, but they're also highly educated. Yes. So what, what, uh, what did we miss here in terms of teaching people how to do this thing that, you know, you, you think of as a pretty basic element of education, being able to write effectively? Um, I think we've been focusing on three wrong things. You know, if you go to, uh, well, the so I did develop a writing course and hence Socratic scribbling is basically that writing course, uh, which I did for online great books, which I then said, well, what the hell, I got a book here. <laughs> so it so is a pandemic, so I'll put it together. So it's connecting the wisdom that you find in the great books as an instructional tool to learn how to write better, more effectively today. Yes. And before we get into the problems of why I think uh, people can't write, let me explain my own experience with that, which is uh, when I got out of school, I thought I wanted to be a Shakespeare scholar. And I went to the University of Chicago Graduate School and studied under the, frankly, I think the best professors in the world at the time on Shakespeare. That immediately got me interested in classical rhetoric because that's how Shakespeare learned how to write. And the principles of classical rhetoric have held true through all the great books. How do the great books help you write? Well, they do it in two ways. One, in that they are arguably the best thinking and writing ever. And you don't have to limit yourself to Western culture great books. You can Lao Tzu, Confucius, but you take anybody that you think is great or that have kind of proven over time, gee, people like to read this guy or this lady and get something out of it. So they provide role models for great writing in just about every discipline. 
right? So Jane Austen teaches you how to write a good rom romantic comedy. I don't think, Eddie, you can write a romantic comedy unless you've read and memorized most of Jane Austen. Um, but over and above that, some of the great writers and thinkers themselves actually had a lot to say about writing, uh, beginning uh, before Plato, but beginning primarily with Plato, uh, especially in his dialogue, The Phaedrus, and then Aristotle, of course, who's my hero, wrote about 11 or 12 things that are relevant uh, to writing, and then Cicero and Quintilian on and on, creating something called classical rhetoric, so that by the time Shakespeare was in school, the maxims from that were taught him, and that's how he could write such beautiful plays and beautiful sentences. And a lot of people, when they read the other Renaissance writers, like Chris Marlowe and Ben Johnson said, geez, these guys write pretty well too. Um, they all learned pretty well until uh, we stopped teaching classical rhetoric. Interesting, today, if you take probably the greatest uh, speech maker of the 20th century was probably Martin Luther King, in my humble opinion. And he shared with that a tradition of, of Baptist preaching. Uh, on the other extreme would be Jesse Jackson, who maybe takes the, uh, uh, what we'll probably talk about later, schemes and tropes a bit too much, everything rhyming with everything. But Martin Luther King wrote a classical oration in everything he did, because that's how he learned in seminary. But the rest of us, that had been abolished for, and we were in progressive education. So, so what you're saying is we abolished classical rhetoric, and that's left this gaping hole in our ability to write. Well, and I, yeah, is, is that no, did I get that? Yeah. yeah. Well, and the other thing that I, that you said, I think that's really important is the the connection between thinking and writing i think sometimes we think of writing as this mystical artistic ability but if you can't think clearly it doesn't matter how how many adverbs you use or how many you know flourishes you put into your into your paper i absolutely agree and that's what i noticed so then i go into advertising as I discovered as I was writing my dissertation and sitting in a library doing research, oh my God, to make it in this racket, you have to spend all day in a library. You can kind of tell from my personality. That's not like what I'm, I'm a fairly chatty Irishman. Spending all day <laughs> yeah. in a library is not what I like to really do. Bored. In a bar, fine, but a library, not so much. So I immediately joined advertising. And here were people, and if you think about people who do know how to write, typically journalists, people who went to journalist school or apprenticed at a suburban uh, newspaper or something like that and advertising copywriters. And in my day, you weren't schooled. Uh, the head of J. Walter Thompson never graduated from, from college when I first joined. He had been in the Marines and uh, ironically, I think sold encyclopedias and great books having never been to college and so, but he learned how to write from a senior writer. In other words, you love, writing was an apprentice system. That's how Shakespeare, by the way, had to apprentice at the Globe Theater. Uh, when he started out, you worked and somebody showed you how to do it. And it was a professional. And you learn from professionals. So what struck me as soon as I got in advertising, holy cow, 
they follow all the rules of classical rhetoric, only they don't know it, even though they didn't learn it at school. By doing it, they learned it. Because classical rhetoric says you learn from nature. <laughs> so the writing principles of classical rhetoric is people say, well, what works? <laughs> It works, it yeah, works. Thing, right? it works. And then to well, your point about writing and thinking, the biggest mistake people make, I think, and this gets into what's wrong with how writing's up, is first that outlining method, right? I, I learned it a bit uh, at Georgetown with Cleanth Brooks and Warren had this book where they said, outline what you wanna say. Well, that sounds great, only how do I know what I wanna say? You know. It's easy, everybody can write pretty well if it's something important and familiar to them, right? When push comes to shove, it's stuff that is workmanlike writing that we're asked to do all the time that we don't know how to do. So the, the method I suggest is in fact, you write in order to find out what you think. You use writing to, the one good piece of stuff we used to get in high school, remember research papers? And they told you to use index cards to collect what other people thought yeah. about the subject. Yeah. Well, I argue, yeah, do that, only do that with your own head. Like, what do you think? So it's not what so-and-so thought, but it's, oh, I have this idea and I have this idea and I've got all these different cards. Right, and I, I keep the, and I don't care if they're cards or sheets of paper or, you know, if you use the word processor, the key in what we learn from Plato and Aristotle is the ability to collect ideas and sort them. Aristotle in his organon says, you start collecting examples of everything you're talking about. You generate a bunch of examples and you sort them into groups and say, and you're comparing and contrasting one group of ideas. You say, well, these five ideas all have this in common. And as you start to almost visually play with the ideas, you start to see patterns that make sense to you. Yeah, and, and then yeah, act, go ahead. And now you've got now I have buckets of things, and then these evolve into different points that I can develop. Okay, I see what you're saying. Now, I think you're kind of getting into it without maybe some of the language of it. Yeah. A lot of our listeners, if they're like me, were never taught classical rhetoric. And I actually thought I had a pretty decent education, but that was a big gap. So could you give us, is it even possible to give us like a, a two minute crash course and what comprises classical rhetoric? Well, maybe not, but I can say how classical rhetoric tells you sort of to work. And you can do this, Charlie, with a, th a thought experiment. If you make a list of every kind of writing that you see over the course of a week or hear or, or read, and by that I mean movies, video, online, and whatever, and just did a running list of them, and that of collecting examples where writing plays a key role, even if you don't see the script, so to speak. They're, they're talking it. You make that list. You notice, and this is what I do with my uh, uh, writing class. I'd say, okay, help me sort these out. What do they all have in common? Well, they all have a, a writer and a reader or an audience, right? And interestingly, sometimes the writer is his or her own audience. 
if you're keeping a journal, but you're yeah. reversing roles. But none of so there's a, think of these as theatrical roles. There's a role as the writer or narrator, and then there's your role as a reader, and then there's words in between. <laughs> and words are supposed to convey something. Well, already that gives you a big common sense insight about uh, writing in language, which, which you and Joe know so well, which is in a, why I think Joe's last book on noise was so much about leadership, that it's about influencing relationships. You write in order to improve your relationship with yourself, if you're keeping a journal, or in somehow to help somebody else do something, think something, or feel something. Yeah, and somehow, somehow to invite them or or move them along some kind of continuum towards something, whether that's knowing me better or just you know approving that project. And I think what you're saying about the audience, because the reality is in business, the audience is almost never ourselves. It is in journaling. You know, I've got my journal somewhere right over there. Um, but I think you're hitting on something just really, really elemental, and a lot of people miss it, which is they write almost as if they're writing to themselves when they're not and they don't take the time or effort to stop and kind of imagine what is it like to be this other person that's receiving this what would what would I need to know what would I want to know what responsibilities do I have um, so how do people how can people break out of that and try to understand that when when they're when they've got their role as the writer and someone else has the role of the audience, what, what do they do to get more in touch with that other role? Well, I think you've, you've hit on the biggest thing, which is when we took uh, courses in writing, they focused on the writing itself, right? Mm -hmm. Without ever, you wrote essays. To who? The teacher? What, what influence were you trying to, what were you trying to get the teacher to think, feel, or do? Nothing. There was no ground for that relationship. So to your point, audience is everything. That's where writing really breaks off and becomes independent. And the thing almost entirely ignored by regular writing books or regular schooling of writing, the classical rhetoric along with journalism and advertising are always what I would call audience centric. In other words, you build the story for your audience. You're not just asking the questions that interest you. I argue, Charlie, you always start up and say, well, what questions does my reader have? Because that's where news lies. That's where interest is. You know, when you pull into a gas station and ask for directions, there's a whole complicated set of things going on. You're trusting that somebody who works at the gas station knows the neighborhood. So you don't ask them to prove their directions. But and there are people who know how to give good directions, usually have a, you know, kind of driving landmarks, you know, second light, look for the church, make a right, you know. And, and they're very good at it and hence can do that and achieve a lot of clarity because there's a particular format for giving that kind of information based upon that kind of question that you're asking the gas station attendant. And he could write down those directions very clearly for you, probably with a little graphic. 
I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, and we've talked before because yeah. you've been uh, an advisor for us as we develop our writing curriculum and, and, and somewhat of a mentor for us. And we've talked about this issue of questions and how get away from just outlining stuff you want to say and start thinking about what questions does my reader have. And I was really glad to see that in Socratic scribbling, that's like all over. I mean, you talk a lot about asking those questions. Um, is that part of classical rhetoric? Is it, a, is it a lot about asking questions? It is indeed. In fact, that's how Aristotle and Plato, to some extent, organized. I'd say what well, depends upon the kinds of questions that lead you to writing. When you're writing for knowledge, you want to know, well, what's going on? What's news? <laughs> you know, because uh, you wouldn't be asking the question if it weren't news to you. You know, what do I right. do when my vacuum cleaner works? Okay. Right. Or does it work? So those are questions of knowledge. Now, in some cases, like the gas station attendants, the character of the speaker is enough. Namely, well, he's in the neighborhood. You're not going to ask him to prove that that's the right way there. Right. If it's somebody talking about what they think is going on with the environment, you may have a lot of questions like, well, how exactly do you know that? Or are, are you, why are your predictions any better than my predictions of a poker game patterns, you know? Yeah. So you get into some fairly serious questions. So, and in a trial, for instance, proof comes in uh, quite often. But Aristotle said there are three sources of credibility when you're writing. There's you, what people know about you right there mm -hmm. is the what you're talking about at all and your knowledge of what you're talking about so that's mm -hmm. the, the the speech and then there's the audience itself is a source of credibility in other words uh, can i tell a, a story here uh, let's jump of to course. advertising just to show this uh, i don't know if you got to the cheese whiz story but this is my one of my favorite stories. One of the first jobs I had was um, Cheese Whiz, even in the, this is the early 1980s. And Cheese Whiz, as you may or may not know, comes in a jar in a sort of Deglo orange, right? And, okay. and it was in, uh, introduced in the early 1950s, maybe even the late 40s, with that kind of science fiction name, right? but it created a spreadable cheese that you could put on saltine crackers and have with your highball because crackers and cheese, right? So it was an easier cheese to have your highball and crackers with your evening cocktails. Okay. That's why it was invented and it sold quite well uh, because you didn't break the cracker and it spread nicely. Well, even by the 70s and 80s, Cheese Whiz was getting out of fashion. It had this kind of Flash Gordon uh, 1950s sci-fi name. Uh, and this is an era when the baby boom is growing up and they're starting to drink wine and eat Gouda. And there were Cheese Whiz, what's that? You know, Jay Leto would say, I know where do they get the cheese from, but where do they get the Whiz? Well, when I think <laughs> Cheese Whiz, like growing up in Chicago as a kid, we, we taped the WGN Wednesday night movie was the Blues Brothers. And of course it was edited 
because it was rated R, but they had it edited with some really hilarious, you know, they'd take out the F word and overdub something else. But there's a scene where Elwood walks into whatever house of vagrants he's ha happens to be living by right under the L. And this, this sort of strung out guy sitting on the stairs just yells, you got my cheese whiz boy. And of course he just pulls it out of his <laughs> coat and throws it over to him. So that would have been what the early eighties where they were like, making fun of whiz. right about this time. Right. And it was sort of dying. So Kraft was saying to itself, well, we'll just milk the brand, which in marketing terms was, well, we'll leave it out there for the people who buy it, but we've got to innovate and introduce products people want more. You know, it's a, this is past its prime, but we'll keep distributing as long as people are buying it. But it therefore missed opportunity for the ad agency because we're not making anybody advertising it. So we try and talk them into, well, give us a, a chance to see if we can actually Pedal more cheese was with advertising. So we're doing a focus group conversation again, knowing your audience, right? So how do we sound to, well, let's find out and let's talk to people who recently stopped using cheese whiz and find out what the problem is. So we did. And they told us, I believe one woman called it a chemistry set in a jar. Uh, that they just thought it was this kind of 1950s sci-fi food and they had all moved on. And, and it was kind of a joke to them. Uh, and by the way, they weren't drinking highballs and eating, so, you know, who bought saltine crackers? You know, it's just- It moved on. It moved, yes, the world had moved on. And I said, well, ladies, take a look at the chart and read the ingredients. Well, at the time, I can't speak of what it's made of today. I think they've changed the spelling even. But right, the, uh, they looked at the ingredients at that time, what, what Kraft, as I understood it had done, is when they make their natural cheeses, you know, you cut it and shape it and there's lots left over. Well, rather than waste that, which is anathema to a company that makes money, they took, I think it was Gouda, cheddar, and maybe Munster, at least three kinds of cheeses, would blend them together with whey, which is the liquid part of cottage cheese. So it's a physical, not chemical process. And the preservative was salt, which is the preservative in cheese anyway. Yeah. Cheese isn't a natural phenomenon. It's, you know, it's made with yeast, bugs. <laughs> yeah, and the, yeah. the, the better cheeses come from better bugs. And Kraft had the best bugs in the world. They could make really good cheese. So anyway. you're not you're not selling it so well right now. <laughs> when you think bugs and cheese, no, no, like we discovered that wasn't a good idea. It was also aged in the Carlsbad caverns and caverns and caves, which I thought was interesting. But the, my audience said, "So what?" <laughs> I thought it was which kind might of be what our audience yeah. is about to say. Here, we're talking about bugs and cheese. I know. Anyway. No, continue. Anyway, they said, oh, and the flavoring was Worcestershire sauce and mustard. Okay. And that's what gave the tangy zip of cheese whiz. Okay. So they said, oh, well, now that I know this, I'll buy it again because it does spread well on crackers. Uh, so you have to tell people this. So we immediately go back, you know, beaming, telling, well, you have to tell people this. And here's this commercial, we made real cheese made easy. And we showed actually the natural cheeses, blending, adding the Worcestershire, voila, cheese was. Uh, Kraft being 
<laughs> shrewd marketer. So, well, let's test this first. So they ran it. One market got cheese whiz advertising, another market got no advertising. And uh, I don't know, for three or six months or so. And the market at which we ran the advertising actually drove sales down. <laughs> so we told the truth that cheese whiz was in fact not a chemistry set in a jar. It's not yeah. what you think. It's really good for it, and it's made out of good stuff. People weren't buying it. Kraft gave us another chance and we reversed our process with the audience. This time we said, well, let's go to the people who eat a lot of cheese whiz. Where do they really eat a lot? And it was in Texas. <laughs> they had twice as many per capita households use cheese whiz in Texas as in the rest of the company. And they used twice as much. So they, you know, instead of one jar, they were using two. So we go down to Texas and chat with ladies. There's a lady who found out that they recently started using cheese whiz. Said, Why did you start using cheese whiz? <laughs> they said, well, and at this time, or the early 80s, microwave penetration was getting up. It was like vaccine, getting up in the 70s and 80s. We were getting herd immunity to uh, the microwaves. And somebody had discovered that if you turn the lid off of a jar of cheese whiz, throw it in the microwave for two minutes, take it out and pour it over nachos, voila, you've got nachos in two minutes. And they're delicious, by the way. And so they described that. And it turned out that's what was driving all this use. And it took, well, down here, we really like our nachos. So the microwave in a minute, uh, cheese sauce for nachos, quadrupled the business. Wow. Okay. So what did I learn from that experience? Uh, well, first of all, we were all heroes. We were the people who turned the cheese was business around. But what I learned is that telling people they're wrong doesn't tend to be very persuasive. Mm. Um, you know, guess what? You were dumb about cheese whiz. It's actually better than you think. Okay. It's hard to change people's minds. Who's one, who really wants to change their mind? It wasn't so much answering the objectives to cheese whiz as making it fit. Okay. Cheese whiz goes with nachos. Yes. <laughs> Don't tell me it's natural cheese that's good for me. Tell me it's junk cheese that goes out, makes other junk foods taste better. It's great on hot dogs. It's, it's the junk cheese to go with all the stuff you really love. Well, yeah. yeah. In fact, Philly for years has always made its beef sandwich. You know, the cheese and beef sandwich. Yeah, it's really cheese steak, yeah. yeah, it's always been cheese whiz. It's the authentic Philly cheesesteak. So I learned a bunch of principles there. And to your point about the audience, I also learned that in both cases, we told the truth. The truth had little to do with it. <laughs> Except I think you always have to tell the truth. People say to me, well, you've been advertising for years. Does that mean you're not a lie? You can sell anything once lying. 
but you can't sell it twice because nobody trusts you anymore. Right. Um, advertising has its own stuff. You have to tell a kind of truth, but it's what you make out of the truths that, that uh, makes them interesting and audience centric and relates to people's interests. What we had done is contemporize cheese whiz. Uh, cheese and crackers were dead. What was uh, the new food people were eating for fun um, and we invented that category of fun foods. Got it. So. Uh, love it. What a great story. So let me play devil's advocate for a second sure. here. We live in an era where, you know, there's 200, what is there, 280 characters in a tweet. Um, what could Socrates and Plato possibly teach us that would be relevant in our digital age when everything's moving so fast and everything sound bites? What, why is it worth giving a second look at these guys? Well, that gets down a little later into classical rhetoric, which is creating highly simplified ways of making your point. And these were done through schemes and tropes and something called enthymemes or memes. Ah, Guess okay. what? Memes come out of Aristotle. Aristotle said, whenever you're writing, you had to create verbal memes, which was usually relying on a maxim. <laughs> According to Aristotle, you know, there are really no new ideas that ultimately your argument always boils down to make hay while the sun shines, <laughs> or it boils down to uh, uh, haste makes waste. Now, those contradict each other. So the trick in writing is figuring out the classic maxim that fits today. He talks about why we like memes as they connect two unlike things together. And the uh, reader himself had to put the connection together. And we do that. You can do that visually, which is the way we do them online, or you do them verbally, uh, usually through a maxim or an epigram, and you can, you know, be Oscar Wilde or La Rochefoucauld or Ben Franklin. And then it's important, something else we weren't given in school was that list. Where the hell was that list? Mm -hmm. Because- you got a great, you got a great number of these in the books, in the book, and they're just, they're so fun to read because you're pulling them from all over the place. And some of them we recognize so readily uh, so, so, so go ahead, talk about the list. Well then, so there's the list of the maxims, which you can get out of Ben Franklin or anybody, La Roche, if you go, Oscar, anybody who writes epigrams, um, you know, even great tombstone things like, you know, what's on Dor Dorothy Parker's tombstone, mm -hmm. please excuse my dust. <laughs> <laughs> I just find that delightful at, at any rate. The other big part of language is sound should echo sense. If you want people to remember something and stick it out, you have to make the sound of what you've written echo the sense. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Everybody remembers that line, even if they weren't there to hear it. It is a classical scheme, which is to put the pattern of the words. And there's some 20 or 30 of these that Shakespeare had to memorize and practice. These are actually good little things. 
to practice. But I guess headlines and especially tweets written in those kind of sound balance patterns tend to be very funny and memorable. So if anything, they doubly help you. I remember when I was at Thompson and I passed around a list of the schemes and tropes to the creative department, they were so angry. They said, why didn't why? anybody give us these before? I, I, all I would have had to do was tick, what's the idea I'm trying to convey? And I could have just played with a variety of these and see which of these you like it, it likes you. You can take so, Salem out of the country, but you can't take the country out of Salem. So we are, uh, we're reinventing the wheel with a lot Absolutely. of the stuff that's already been defined. The changes in the media don't change the inherent structure of the way we communicate with each other. Anything they um, emphasize. Well, if we've got someone listening right now who who wants to learn more about this stuff, obviously they should pick up your book, Socratic Scribbling. And there's a lot of, in the, I, what I, one of the things I really liked is at the end, there's this toolkit where you break a lot of this stuff down and it's very easy to digest. Um, and it's kind of sequential, do this, then do that, then do that. How long would it take someone to learn how to write this way? I mean, you had a lot of study, it, you had a whole career at, uh, in advertising and you've, you've mentored a lot of writers and you've taught a lot of writing. So I am curious, like, is this something that somebody could start quickly like what would they need to do to start understanding what schemes are and what tropes are and actually get some value out of them that isn't just oh that's kind of interesting but i'm not sure how to apply that okay uh, i strongly recommend that i think the best um book out on schemes and tropes now is by mark Forsyth. it's called the uh, you can't read the elements of eloquence he's a british writer journalist who put this together that actually tells you a little background, it gives you great examples of all the schemes and tropes, if what you want to write are tweets, yeah. especially and online, quick, memorable things. I believe he's a this is a book video I go blogger too. Pardon? Uh, I believe he's a video blogger too, and he's got some really fun stuff. I think he calls mistaken. himself the Inky Fool. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he's this kind of word nerd in London. Yes, uh, and he explains all that. Yeah, okay. I think you, I think you pointed him out to me before, and uh, that that is worth checking out. It's a lot of fun. And you can just if you Google classical rhetoric schemes and tropes, you'll find fifty lists of these, and you can just print them out, and you can play with them, and and uh, it's kind of like making up limericks. And uh, you just take an idea you have and try it fit one. But there is a logic behind them. So they're worth kind of studying. Anyway, to answer your questions, I think you can learn the fundamentals in six weeks. And then you need a year of practice. But then okay. you can there write. You <laughs> That's, you know, if you can make it through Harvard and not learn how to write, uh, six weeks and then a year of practice doesn't sound that no, it doesn't. daunting. I, I do want to ask just one thing because we um, we get uh, we're lucky in that we get to work a lot with uh, some of our military yeah. special operations teams and we do teach a writing course and and one of the questions that I'll ask is uh, who uh, 
experiences fear when they get a writing assignment or, or some kind of anxiety. And a lot of guys will raise their hand. And then I asked the set follow-up question, which is just, just so we understand each other, how many of you have jumped out of airplanes before? And they all raised their hand. And, and many of them would prefer to jump out of an airplane than to write something. So how, how can we help people break down the fear of, of the written word? Because I think it's there for a lot of folks. Yeah, I think it's practicing the picking your own mind uh, a lot of writers will tell you the artist way, though in some ways I'll make fun of, you know, the express yourself just right every morning, whatever comes into your head. Well, in a way, it's kind of funny. Uh, I know uh, William Butler Yeats wrote that way. He considered it inspirational. Um, but I think people who have tried to do that, you, they sort of end up writing their morning list. <laughs> anything else doing what's called the morning pages i recommend a different style of morning pages which is ask yourself a question that's on your mind and don't answer it. ask yourself well in order to answer this question what are some other questions i need to look and think about first i would say and then start answering the questions and don't worry about the writing just make list of the key points and answer them and start to sort them until you're kind of satisfied that you are you've thought through what you want to do uh, why do i think this is important because people this is gets back to your writing and thinking here this is so important in every area of your life suppose you want to ask a girl out right how do i ask sophie out okay what questions do I need to ask myself? How do I get to know? Do I know anybody who knows Sophie? What attracts me to Sophie? Um, where might I have opportunities to meet Sophie? Is there somebody who can introduce? Who are people who could introduce who'd be the best person? You could well develop a hundred questions. You think this through. Well, let me let me tell you another story. How it's so practical. Well, we were on our way up to Kellogg's to make a big presentation, so of course we're killing time. And there was one very uh, one account woman who had been dating a guy from Cincinnati who worked at Procter and Gamble for over a year, and he was had yet to kind of bring up marriage as a subject, and she wanted to kind of move the relationship along. So then the people started teaching, well, Malachi, you're our big strategist. What should she do? So I asked her about 15 minutes worth of questions about her and him. And then I tell her what to do. So what should I do? I said, feed his friends. Well, she actually got a little pissed. She said, I just pour out my heart to you. <laughs> this is like important to me. And you give me this like dumb answer, like feed his friends. And I said, yes, I think you should feed his friends and he'll ask you to marry you. And she dismissed him. Then everybody else gave her that, well, have an honest talk with him. Uh, give him an ultimatum. Tell him, you know, he needs to decide where this relationship is going in three months or you're going to move on. You know, and then I discouraged, I said, oh, ultimatums. <laughs> You know, they don't work real well in negotiations. I wouldn't do that. I'd feed his friends. 
so anyway, about a few weeks pass, and um, I'm up in the uh, Kellogg account group, and there is uh, Kelly showing off her ring. Uh, she's engaged, and uh, uh, George, who runs the account, says, uh, so Kelly, tell her what happened. So it turned out that uh, her boyfriend, Kyle, was in town to play soccer because uh, he belonged to a Midwest soccer league and was going to spend the night at her place. So she decided to put my, said, well, why don't you bring everybody here after the game and I'll uh, have a, a stew and beer and I'll invite my girlfriend. And then she said, well, he wasn't all that happy. He said, well, make sure they're the pretty ones, I think was his line. So it didn't sound good to start off. I said, okay, we'll come. So anyway, the evening comes and she's so busy putting out pouring beers for all these jerks and whatnot. She never gets a chance to talk to Kyle. Turns out he has an early plane in the morning because he has seal. So he just crashes. She never, she'd already said, well, my advice clearly didn't work. And she didn't even get time to give him the ultimatum. The following Wednesday, he surprised her, came to her house to be Well, how did that come about? Well, it turned out that his friends, captain of the soccer team, told him he'd better ask Kelly to marry him or he was going to pursue her because she was a girl worth having. My, I told her my analysis had been that Kyle was a guy's guy. He loved sports. He loved the competition at Procter & Gamble. He loved being successful. The opinion of other men was the most important thing to him. And interestingly, that's also why Kelly loved him, is because her father was a man's man and her mother told her, the advantage of a man's man is you didn't have to worry too much about fooling around or whatnot, because a guy really liked his guy friends. And all you had to do is keep him in booze every now and then. And you didn't have to overplan his social life. And he bored. And she sort of that's, <laughs> that's when Maliki Walsh relationship expert incorporated was was born. Absolutely. But it, I'm not a relationship expert, but I am a rhetorician. It, it's sometimes better a rhetorician than a rhetorician. Yeah, it sounds like it. That's fascinating. Well, it is always good to talk with you. Um, let's find an, an, we should we should find an excuse to talk about Shakespeare at some point because I'd love to get your thoughts. Um, the book is Socratic Scribbling. Uh, where can people get it? Amazon, I saw it. Amazon, it will be available through online great books. There is a, just going up, it's not complete yet, but socraticscribbling.com. So my good friend, and the person who's actually responsible for the book is uh, Katie King, uh, who right. guided me through the process and is- um, Well, I'm so glad she did. It's really, it's really a treasure, so. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Maliki. It's always good to talk with you. Always a pleasure as well. And I would just make one plug. Why I like what you guys do is that you developed all the techniques by nature by working with people. 
I remember once I was at one where I think your client was Harley Davidson and the whole senior management comes up on their hogs. Um, but they were having trouble communicating and helping them as a group analyze why and develop templates to address the kinds of questions they need to address. I remember just seeing what a revelation it was to them and how uh, you don't actually need to read classical rent, but you need somebody to show you how to do these fundamental truths about writing and communicating. Well, and it's kind of cool to, to see that some of the stuff that we've stumbled on is actually much older and much more substantial and just more innate to what it, I guess what it means to be humans and how to, how to move them. So great stuff. Thank you. All right. <laughs>